Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. Hi there, this is Graham Rowett. Are you feeling scared? You will be. This is the Wicked Library. Welcome to Roll of the Dice, an actual play podcast where we play mini campaigns and one-shots with a rotating cast of players and game masters. Join us for a wide variety of games that follow many different characters on their adventures. Enjoy bite-sized stories that allow you to jump in at any time with a range of different genres and styles. One episode you might hear an adventurer fighting a fearsome dragon, the next a dashing werewolf dressed like a Victorian dandy. This is outside of my himbo category. Bro, bro, you're going in the wrong direction, come back. Whatever the story, we are queer artists who will always strive to be inclusive. Wow, I contain multitudes. Alright, that is a critical success. Can I stealthily cast my fishing rod? You can certainly try. I'm gonna die here. When you make a mistake, you just gotta double down sometimes. And I think that now is one of those times. (laughs) Don't forget, follow us on ROTDpod on Twitter and Roll of the Dice Pod on Tumblr for updates. See you there. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Hello there. Welcome to Season 11 of the Wicked Library. This is episode number 1119. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. Today, we'll be presenting a story written for us by fan-favorite TWL alum author, the talented Sebastian Bendix, entitled Butane Sally and the Swamp God of Sinkhole. If you haven't already, you can grab his work on Amazon, including his amazing collection of stories, Beyond the Whale, and his brilliant young adult works, The Patchwork Girl and The Stronghold. Now, before we start today's story, a sincere thank you to those of you supporting the show on Patreon. You truly make the show possible. It's because of your support that I can continue to pay the very talented authors, voice actors, and composer. Simply, it's your support that allows me to make sure those who contribute to the show don't work for free. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and I really do rely on this support to help me pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing that you're a part of making this show possible, you can also get fun rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support, even more. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Lastly, a huge thank you to those of you who have taken the time to leave a five-star rating and share your review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really mean a lot to us who create the show, and they help the show grow and help other listeners find us by increasing visibility in Apple Podcasts and other platforms. If you haven't already, we'd really appreciate you taking a few minutes to leave a five-star rating and write a quick review in Apple Podcasts. Today's dark tale is told by Sarah Ruth Thomas, accompanied by a custom score by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. All scars have stories behind them. Let's find out the story behind the scars of Butane Sally.
The children gathered where they always did at story hour, in the crumbling shadow of the clock tower that had not told time for more than a decade. None who made their home in the borough required help of a clock to tell time anyway. The hazy cast of the sun told them all they needed to know, kept the young from wandering, kept the elders watchful of the borders, and alert to the threats that lurked in the darkened streets beyond. Those who chose to ignore the rhythms of nature did not survive long in this city, and the young were expected to take this lesson to heart at a very early age. That was why the tradition of the telltale was so valued here in the borough, and why all those who took on the mantle, however briefly, did so with solemn purpose. The dusk was beginning to wane when the telltale took her seat on the story stump, adjusting her robe, and resting her feet upon the dead roots that grasped like gnarled fingers through the asphalt. As the fire from the pit warmed her bare toes, she looked upon the flame-danced faces, recognizing many of her favorites among the gathered. Jaco, with his freckles and doubtful smirk. Wide-eyed Tandy, with her black cloud of hair. Sadie, so dark, quiet, and thoughtful. A feeling of anticipation emanated from them, as palpable as the excited whisper of breeze and the anxious crackling of flame. Tonight was the moment for which they had waited, the reward for enduring long weeks of allegory, myth, and history. Tonight, they would hear the story of the swamp god of sinkhole, and best of all, they would hear it from one who was there. The telltale raised her hands gently, and a hush spread over the children. When she was satisfied with the quiet, she pushed back the sleeve of her robe and thrust her arm into the firelight. A gasp issued forth from the crowd. The children of the borough were no stranger to scars. Most had a few already, but these were unlike any they'd seen. On the telltale's inner arm, from the wrist to the elbow, ran a double row of round, red welts, the alien markings of some unfathomable monster or fiend. The telltale allowed herself a moment to savor the widened eyes and jaw-dropped mouths. Let me tell you the story of how I got these scars, she said. It was on a night like this, twelve summers ago, that my tale begins. I was 15 years old then, a girl of some experience but still sheltered, old enough to know my first pains of womanhood, but not old enough to have claimed my first kill. My father, a tribal leader and fierce warrior, wanted a son to carry on in his place and took my birth as a disappointment. My mother died before she could give him that son, and though I grew into a promising hunter, I knew that I could never truly be what he wanted. He's gone now, claimed by the jungle. On some nights, like this one, I miss him. You know well of the hole in the sky and how it brought green ruin upon the land. You know well of the steel stone towers, how once they stood shining and proud in man's glory and how now they stand silent, their faces bearded in vines and thick jungle growth. Most say the ruins are haunted, but I have seen herdites making their homes within, and heard the howling of crossbred packmen carried upon the wind from their faraway rooftops. These are no ghosts, but men, both natural and unnatural, and they are far more deadly than any mere phantom. Remember that, young ones, when one of the nanas tries to scare you with tales of Yure and Banshees. You tell them that Sally gave you the truth. Those that draw breath are the true threats of this world, and ghosts are but the fears of the old. The hothouse gases released by the sun created the mutated growth in our city, and with them came an embarrassment of plant life, both beneficial and deadly. We were well aware of the hanging goiters and their spores. On more than one occasion, a young forager would get too close to the plants and trigger their defensive response, 
resulting in a cloud of spore gas capable of killing a large beast or even a man. One morning, a large cluster close to the village was triggered by a pack of mute animals, erupting in a cloud too vast and invisible for our village to avoid before it was too late. As fate would have it, I'd been out of the village all day, foraging for the berries that helped the old women with their aches. When I returned, I found every man, woman, and child, including my father, stricken with spore sickness. I was the only one spared. There was only one cure for the sickness, an antidote derived from a rare flower known as the jaundiced eye due to its yellow-red coloring. Most would die within a day following exposure to a spore cloud, but a few drops of the antidote were all that was needed to cure the stricken almost immediately. But the flowers that produced the antidote had grown scarce in our area. There had been none sighted growing anywhere within many miles of our village. Whoever was tasked with venturing out to find them would have to do so almost entirely on faith. Naturally, as the only one standing, the task fell on me. Before I set out, I consulted my father, who lay sick in his bed. He tried to offer encouragement, but behind his eyes I saw hopelessness. Where will you look? He rasped. I will make my way northeast, I said. Surely the flower still grows in the central forest. My father shook his head. Do not go there, he said. The crossbred have taken the ruins that surround the forest. They roam the pathways there in great number. You will not survive. There is danger in any direction, I said. What choice do I have? I have slaughtered a great many crossbred tribe, my father said. If the packmen there should catch you, they will know you are of our tribe. Some of them have powers. They may even know you are my daughter. And if they know that... By the dark tone of his voice, I knew what he meant. Some fates were worse than death. So where am I to go? I asked. To the south, he said. Over the moaning bridge, to sinkhole swamp. Fear tightened my throat, saving me the indignity of a coward's response. Sinkhole Swamp has always been a place of great dread for all but the most feral of beasts. No legwalker, crossbred or herd at, dares dwell there. The mute animals that make it their home are said to be nightmares crawled forth from the sea, scuttling horrors so twisted and vile that to merely gaze upon them can drive one to madness. If that forsaken swamp was truly my best option, then our tribe was almost certainly doomed. But my father was right. My best chance of success, slim as it was, lay in sinkhole. I swallowed the fear into the pit of my stomach and nodded in agreement. You will require the rig, said father. Our tribe, like most, was built around a cache. In the days following the great crash, a group of men that included my father had come upon an abandoned warehouse full of gas tanks, butane, propane, and the like. Knowing they'd make for good trade, the men stacked the tanks as high as their carts would allow, and our tribe has been using them for currency ever since. There are only a few tanks left now, but in those days, we still possessed a huge stash. For a great many years, we were known among the Herdite tribes as the Keepers of the Blue Flame. That flame has dimmed considerably now, and we go by another name. But in those days, the butane not only allowed us to survive, but to thrive. But trade was not the only way the gas brought us power. The elders also saw value in using the gas as a weapon, and thus the rig was created. A contraption comprised of a tank harness, insulated hose, and flame-resistant nozzle that could focus the stream and blast fire on anything foolish enough to get in its path. The design has been streamlined somewhat from its original inception, 
But in those days, the rig was an unwieldy monstrosity that was cumbersome to even the sturdiest of wielders. The notion of a 15-year-old girl effectively utilizing it would have been cause for much laughter if any of the trapsmen were capable of mirth. But as I was the only one standing, no jokes were made. Knowing that the rig was my best chance of survival, I went to the place where it was kept, an old gas station garage in the heart of our territory. Wheezy was there, sick as the others, but he managed the strength to adjust the harness for me and help to get it onto my shoulders. It was impossible for me to walk with two tanks, so Wheezy removed one and did his best to balance the weight. This will have to do, he said with what little breath was left in his lungs. Best be judicious. Wheezy insisted I test the rig outside the garage. There were a few charred mannequins out there for target practice, and despite being all but bedridden, Wheezy dragged his sorry bones outside to help me with the controls. The trigger built into the nozzle seemed easy enough to use, but aiming it with the hose attachment was a struggle. With a hand trembling from sickness, Wheezy helped set my aim at a mannequin some 20 feet in the distance and nodded. I pulled the trigger, and a jet of fire arced from the nozzle and blasted the mannequin, engulfing its right side in searing flame. Wheezy shrugged. Good enough, he croaked. We both knew that it wasn't good enough, but old Wheezy had given me all the training his spore-racked body could manage, so I set out into the jungle, rig weighing me down like a tortoise shell. My preparations had taken the better part of the morning, so by the time I found myself on the wide path of Broadway, it was well past noon. The city of Helix has always been my home, but for some reason, on that day, dwarfed by the overgrown canyons of concrete and steel, I felt alien, like an unwelcome bug on the arm of a giant. The sun was at its zenith, orange and hot, the jungle growth singing with the clickety-click of the needle birds, a constant pleading for mealtime prey. Beyond the veil of endless green were innumerable carnivores waiting to feast, and though my body was shielded by hides and wrappings, the flesh beneath left a sweaty bouquet for their nostrils. All the more reason to make haste. As long as the shadows were small, I had the advantage, but with the lowering of the sun, so lowered my chances of survival. The southern regions of Helix were wilder than the north, and wilder still to the southeast, which was where I was headed. The thinning out of herd-out traps was one factor. The crossbred had always dominated the southern lands, from the Bay of Sorrows to the Devastation. This was true even in the days before the Great Crash. The second factor was the ocean. A great many years of man's abuse had left it high and full of terrors, with tides and currents so unpredictable that few dared to fish its waters or venture its waves to seek what lay beyond the red horizon. To approach the bay was to taunt the unknown, and there was no foretelling what brayan leviathan might emerge from it, no fathoming what barnacled confusion might conjure from dark and soiled depths, and I was heading straight for it. I kept to the path traveled by fellow herdites, not because I felt a kinship, but because if help were needed, it would only come from sympathetic tribesmen. Turning east at the path of commons, I pushed through a thick underbrush, needing the help of the blade I kept strapped to my side, an old boat propeller that had been fixed with a handle and sharpened to a razor-keen edge. Nettles clawed at my arms and tore at my legs. Were it not for the protection of the hides, my limbs would have been soon stripped bloody and raw. After long minutes of struggle, I emerged in a clearing and, needing a moment to catch my breath, I stopped and took stock of my surroundings. From a cluster of moss poked a rusted old street sign that read, Severnin. I was aware of this area due to trade relations with the tribes people here, and though relieved that I was not in enemy territory, I was cautious moving forward regardless. 
Things changed quickly in Helix. New leaders rose, peaceful relations turned hostile, loyalties shifted. What was true one week was no longer true the next, so it was best not to blunder into a neighboring settlement assuming to be welcomed. I hoped the rig on my shoulders wouldn't be taken as provocation, but still, all the same, I was glad for it. But as I reached the first row of crumbling brownstones, I knew there would be no greeting, hostile or otherwise. Through darkened portals, eyes gleamed, taking me in with equal parts fear and suspicion, but nothing emerged from the buildings to threaten or challenge. Whispered voices shadowed me as I walked on, but no rock was thrown, no spear hurled, no aggression of any kind greeted me as I made my way along the weed-cracked avenue. Was I that which they feared? A slight herdite girl struggling beneath a flamethrower? Or was some greater threat keeping them scared in their hovels? A part of me was grateful to pass by undisturbed, but another part, the intuitive, instinctual part, took this as a very bad omen. The neighborhood gave way to an expanse of iron structures and warehouses full of now useless equipment. An area once used to house the machines of industry long fallen to rust. My only path lay through this haunted area, and though there was no reason to suspect enemies lurking within the crumbling structures, a fearful pulse quickened within me. There was no part of Helix that was not infected by the hothouse growth, but there was less of it here, a stretch barren and thinning like an old man's scalp. Years of poison seeping into the ground had made the soil a sickly orange color, and the plant life here, though prodigious and deadly, withered in the pitiless sun. I heard the shuffle of feet behind me, callous skin patting on brick. My wrapped hands gripped the flamethrower nozzle as I whipped around, ready to blast my stalker to hot cinder. But there was no one behind me, neither crossbred nor heard at. I scanned the warehouse rows for signs of attackers, but all that glared back was a patchwork of broken windows, the mocking smile of a mouth missing teeth. I know you're there, I said to the shadows. Nothing answered. I stood there a while, waiting for some evidence of my suspicions. It was easy enough to be tricked by your ears and helix. What sounded like a football could be revealed to be no more than a scampering rodent or a section of sidewalk settling into the toxin-soft topsoil. But my father was thorough in his teachings, and I possessed a keen grasp of strange noises and their possible threat to my safety. I was certain the sound I heard moments before was the padding of feet. It was unwilling to face me whatever it was, so I turned my rig shielded back on it and continued on my way south. I'd traveled no more than a few yards when I heard the noise again, more pronounced this time. Again, I pivoted around to face it, expecting to see nothing, and was surprised to find a small child, no older than nine years of age, staring back at me. I say staring because it was the eyes I remember most. Whatever life they once held was gone, replaced by an oily blackness not unlike the pools of crude that bubbled forth from the bog pits of West Carson. The child, I believe it was a boy, but in truth it was not easy to tell, was dressed in rags, his hands and feet so thick with calluses that they had formed what seemed like a protective, crust-like shell. What could be seen of his body was ashen and webbed with charcoal highlights, some terrible mutation of extreme spore sickness. The boy opened his mouth, but all that came out was a sound like a rusty hinge. Stay back, I said, thrusting out the nozzle so he could see the warden flicker of flame. I don't want to burn you, but if you come any closer, I will. The child croaked again, and too late I realized it was not a response, but a summoning. All around me, the sound of calloused feet skittered over weed and rock, and from the darkened hollows emerged small, emaciated beings with ashen skin and eyes of liquid black. I issued a warning blast from the rig, and the children reared back at the side of the flame. But once it had passed, they advanced on me with a slow, confident purpose. I repeated my demand that they stay back, 
But the diseased children took no heed of my warning, and despite the certainty of their malicious intent, I could not bring myself to make good on my threat. These children had belonged to someone, perhaps the fearful people in those moss-coated hovels, and the thought of fire roasting them like so many sucklings was more than my conscience could bear. Turning back to my course, I fired several short blasts, just enough to clear my immediate path. But before I could take three steps forward, I bumbled into a snare, which tightened instantly around my ankle. A violent pull followed, yanking me off my feet, and I fell back onto the rig as it hit the rocky ground with a thunderous clang. A second pull followed, and before I had a chance to react, I was dragged, rig and all, into the darkened entryway of one of the warehouses. Scrambling in the dark, I managed to unsheathe my blade and hack my ankle free of the snare. Very little sunlight managed through the broken windows, and it took my eyes a moment to adjust to the vast and shadowed space I now inhabited. I attempted to pull myself up, but the weight of the rig kept me pinned to the cement floor like a beetle on its back, my limbs flailing but finding no purchase. Panic raced in my mind, and to keep it at bay, I summoned my father's advice on what to do in such a predicament. I could have just cut myself free of the harness, but then I would not have been able to get it back on, leaving me defenseless. No, I must remain strapped in the rig while quickly getting back on my feet. After a calming breath, I thrust all my weight to one side, the ballast allowing me to pull the rig onto my back and balance it there like a stick bundle. Then, using the weight to steady me, I stood. I was glad for the rig still on my back when I saw what waited for me in the shadows. Stacked high around the warehouse were large rusted drums, and judging from the sour metallic smell, I deduced they were filled with some kind of chemical. But their drums and their content were the least of my worries. Shuffling out from all corners of the room were gaunt, skeletal creatures, gray skin taut over agonized bones, toothless mouths gaping forth spore-blackened tongues. Their movements were slow, and there was no coordination among them, but their intent of purpose could not be mistaken, to slaughter me and devour the flesh from my bones. Any misgivings I had about killing innocents would have to be set aside if I intended to leave this place alive. Not that there was any innocence to be found in those murderous faces. And then there was the matter of fuel. Certainly there was enough to burn the warehouse and its hideous occupants to the ground, but it would likely drain the rig dry, rendering what remained of my quest all but futile. The solution presented itself as a symbol pasted on a nearby drum, a circle with a burning flame at its center, set over text that read, Flammable. Knowing what this implied, I kicked the drum over, spilling its contents onto the floor, where it expanded into an oily puddle that separated me from the children. As I watched the liquid pool at their feet, I took a cautious step back and prayed that the drum's warning still held. A short blast from the rig confirmed my prayers and then some. The moment the flames touched liquid, the room was lit by the blast of a small explosion and a wave of heat hit my face. A hand pawed at me from behind, and I wheeled around to find a pair of creatures advancing on me. So I pulsed my finger on the trigger and blasted them with a brief but effective burst. The blazing creatures emitted a gasp and shriek as they burned, sending a shudder of revulsion through my bones. The creatures caught in the burning spill were shrieking now, and I felt like if I stayed too long, the sound might drive me insane. The vast area was lit now in a ghastly orange glow, and fumes from the ignited chemicals filled the air with gaseous misery, burning my eyes. Through the tears, I glimpsed the entrance through which I'd been dragged and made my way back to it, wary of any enemies that should emerge from the hellish chaos. Sure enough, one being, a female, I think, did clamor forth in an effort to stop me, but rather than risk burning us both, I cut her down with a swing of my blade. The feeling of hacking through flesh sent my stomach into a spin. But I pushed through the revulsion and passed her flailing body, 
to make my way out of the building. As I stumbled into the weeds, I could hear the agonized screeching of the creature's echoes behind me. Outside, any remaining creatures had scattered and fled, allowing me to catch my breath and watch as the warehouse erupted into a great wall of flame. There was something comforting about the crackling blaze, and were it not for my mission and the hideous cacophony of dying creatures, I might have been tempted to stay for a while and watch it burn. I took a moment to crane my neck to my shoulder and check the rusty gauge that sat there, reading that my tank was now one-third empty. A grim portent, as the worst part of my journey undoubtedly still lay ahead. The sun was sinking low in the western sky when at last I set my eyes upon the moaning bridge. Even at a distance, I could hear the haunted cry of its ancient rusted supports swaying in the wind, the eerie, plaintive sound that gave the bridge its namesake. A chill settled into my being, the combined effort of the icy ocean breezes and the foreknowledge of what awaited me upon that fearsome crossing. Many braver and stronger than I had made that journey. Very few returned and those that did bore the scars and night terrors to prove it. As I navigated the eruption of pavement that led to the bridge, I summoned what courage I could and made solemn peace with whatever fate had in store. I took to the left side of the bridge, the stationary procession of long-abandoned automobiles appearing as a degraded snapshot of oncoming traffic. All of them were overgrown and most were empty, but occasionally, as I passed by their murky windows, I caught sight of a skeleton inside. Some hapless motorist unwilling to flee their vehicle even after it ceased functioning. When the great crash came, there were many unwilling to let go of the old ways, and the city was, and still is, well littered with their sad remnants. Many an afternoon I found myself musing at the sight of these relics, allowing my mind to imagine what life was like in those times. Motors humming, horns braying, the oily smell of exhaust and the frustrated bustle of daily commuters. But now was no time for such musings, and this was no place for pause and reflection. This fact was soon to be proven. It was no more than 50 yards into my crossing that I heard the first scrabbling of claws high above me. Scritchity scritch, scritchity scritch. A billowy shadow fell over my path, and glancing up, I saw a gray-green canopy woven into the upper regions of the bridge's support cables. A sickly sort of webbing formed from excretions and seaweed. There was no way to circumvent this horrible trap, but nonetheless I moved to the far left walkway, away from its center. I'd gladly take the challenges waiting on the edge of the bridge. Unstable sections, pummeling winds, loose whipping cables, over the certain horrors that lurked at its heart. As I approached the far railing, a wet groan greeted me, the sound of struggling, water-filled lungs scraping against the wind. At first, I thought it was just the moaning of the bridge, but as I neared one of the massive supports, I saw a human-sized figure kicked up against it by a hardened cocoon of sea web. The smart thing would have been to keep moving, but the cries of the sneered creature were impossible to ignore, and I have always been known, much to my father's dismay, as someone with a soft heart for the defenseless. I drew close to the support, allowing the light from the nozzle's flame to illuminate the webbed area. What I saw in the flicker caused me to gasp sharply and look away. Look at it, I heard my father say. Look upon them and have pity. I looked. The cocoon being wriggling in the nimbus of my flame was likely a male, although with a significant part of its body obscured, there was room for doubt on the matter. By herd at standards, it was most certainly crossbred, its twisted limbs and misshapen head would never pass for acceptable in my tribe, nor any with which we were allied. But alas, the poor wretch had found no kinship among the beastmen either. For the crossbred were proud of their mutations, 
seeing them not as deformities, but as the physical manifestation of their carefully cultivated animal genes. The crossbred believed themselves superior, and something this twisted and useless, a snaffum in their parlance, could never be justified as such. The fact that this thing had grown beyond an infant was a testament to its will to survive, but Will only went so far in Helix. Its luck, whatever little it possessed, had finally run out. Or perhaps the misshapen gods to which it prayed had granted yet another reprieve. Despite being taught to revile all impure species, my instinct to help won out and I began hacking away at the cocoon with my blade in order to free the poor thing. It was not as easy as I hoped. The weapon had hardened to a thick, shell-like substance, and I could not strike at it too hard for fear of injuring the snaffum in the process. Worse still, the snaffum squawked and gabbled as I hacked, threatening to draw the attention of its captors. I tried to quiet the simple fool, but it could not understand me, and sure enough, the sound of scrabbling claws descended upon us in every direction. I circled around quickly, issuing a blast of flame to discourage the approach of Scotland legs. Though the sun had not yet fully set, the creatures closing in were obscured by the long shadows cast by the bridge towers, as well as the cover provided by the detritus in every direction. The truth was that I knew what stalked me. The few fortunate souls that had attempted the bridge and survived brought back stories of Arak stations, a hell-spawned fusion of spider and horseshoe crab that made its nest in the towers and support cables, eight-limbed monstrosities that feasted on flesh and laid their eggs in dead bodies to bring their young to full incubation. Would that I could spare you the knowledge of their existence, for surely they will populate your nightmares. Let my encounter serve as a warning to stay far clear of the Bonin Bridge, especially in the warm months of spring, for that is their spawning season. The very same season, to my misfortune, that brought upon the spores. The flame burst bought me no more than a handful of seconds. The scrabbling grew louder, and in the span of three jackhammering heartbeats, I saw the oily glint of their hard-shell carapaces tightening in around me like a living noose. The twisted soul at my back loosed a scream, and I turned just in time to see a trio of Iraq stations descend on him from above. Their spiky legs stabbing into his flesh and tearing loose wet chunks. The snaffum howled in agony as the creature shredded him, stuffing pieces of him into their twitching, mandible mouths while depositing slimy egg sacs down his torn open throat. I couldn't bear the sight of any living thing enduring such hell. I opened the nozzle wide and bathed the victim and his tormentors in fire. The Iraq station screeched and hissed, claws flailing in flame, but the deformed man was mercilessly silent. For a flash, I would have sworn he was grateful. The Snaffum's torment may have been ended, but mine had only begun. In addition to the cluster of Iraq stations tightening around me, more were descending from above, born on ropey slime webs that issued from their backsides. Unconcerned now at waste of fuel, I torched a path through them, charging forward as their flaming appendages dug and clawed at me through the screeching. The sharpened points of their legs tore at my leggings and gouged thick rivulets into my skin, but I wouldn't allow the pain to keep me from moving forward. The smell of meat sizzling in their shells was unsettlingly sweet, an aroma that somehow evoked both nausea and hunger. And it occurred to me that, had our roles been reversed, I might have been tempted to trap some and make them a meal. But then the thought of their primary food source caused me to gag, and I blasted a hole in their ranks that allowed me to escape into a corridor of rusted cars. A swarm of them followed as I ran. It seemed that the more Iraq stations I scorched, the more they kept coming. I used the cars for cover, weaving in between them, diving under axles of trucks where the rig would allow. I kept in this manner for the better part of a mile until the ground beneath me began to slope gradually downward, offering me hope. 
My adrenaline surged with the first wafts of sinkhole, propelling my overburdened legs forward with all they could manage. In my haste, I charged through a narrow passage of cars, failing to notice the thin membrane of web blocking the far end of the passageway. I barreled right into it and was instantly stuck, unable to move my legs as well as the arm nearest the sheath of my blade. Thrashing against the web did no good. In fact, the more I struggled, the more it tightened, holding me frozen in place. The scritchety scritch of my pursuers grew louder, leaving no question to the severity of my situation. It was one thing to die, another to die at the rendon, merciless claws of the Araxtations. Any action, no matter how futile, was worth attempting, even if it meant losing the rig. After some wriggling, I realized that though my clothing was inexorably stuck, my body still had some leeway. After some effort, I managed to pull my trapped arm free of its wrappings and was able to slip the blade free of its sheath. Unfortunately, my fingers fumbled and I lost my grip on the handle, dropping it to the pavement with a defeated clang. It lay far from my reach. The scrabbling was almost upon me, bringing my desperation to a boil. I tore at my webbed legs, freeing them enough to move, but the rig still locked me in place. I would have to unharness myself from it if I hoped to survive. Feverishly, I undid the straps as the first of the crawling abominations arrived, pulling myself free of the rig as droplets of slime rained down from their clicking mandibles. Losing my balance, I tumbled to the ground, swinging a wild arc with the blade and hacking one of the creatures clean in half as I fell. Hit in the ground, I pulled myself into a crouch and whirled around, blade ready to inflict more damage. To my horror, the crawlers had completely descended upon the rig, their glistening carapaces coating it like some living suit of armor. Self-preservation dictated that I should leave the rig to the fiends, but I knew that without it, my people were lost. And what hope did a person stand in this world without her people? Freshly determined, I rose and hacked at the Araxtation cluster coat in my rig. Some of the blows landed cleanly and carved through the appendages. Some hit stony shell and sent a shockwave of pain back up my arm. But I did not waver in my mission, and as I rained blow after blow down on the creatures, I heard myself grunt and cry out in battle rage. After moments that felt like hours, I had cleared enough of the monstrosities to grasp the nozzle of the rig, and in a flash of wild inspiration, I turned it back on the web snare and pressed down on the trigger, firing the rig loose of its own sticky confines. I grabbed hold of the main tank, the heat of it burning my hand, and yanked it free. By now the crawlers had arrived in numbers so great they appeared as a singular mass, a twitching, gnashing wave of legs, claws, and mandibles that advanced and withdrew back into itself like a nightmare tide. If I had several full tanks, I could not fry all of it. What was left of one would hardly make a dent. Recalling my solution in the warehouse predicament, I remembered what my father had once told me about automobiles. To operate, they required tanks full of fuel similar to that which I carried on my back. Fuel that was flammable, that could explode if ignited and there were automobiles all around me, as far as the eye could see. Before me was a truck of some sort, loaded down with racks and various add-ons, a gas guzzler, as the ancients might call it. As the crawling wave crested over its hood, I aimed the nozzle where I guessed the truck's enormous gas tank would be and blasted it with an intense burst of fire. At first, I did not hear the explosion, but rather felt it a cushion of heat smacking me with scalding intensity. I was blown back through the air, buffeted on the explosive wave like a fish flopping against a boiling current. I must have hung in the air for at least 15 seconds before the blast vaulted me over the railing and deposited me in the shallow marshes beyond the bridge. Had I not made the crossing as far as I had, I would have fallen from a hat that was lethal. I was grateful for the cool and salve of swamp water. My proximity to the explosion was close enough to be scorched by it, and I could already feel blisters forming on my now uncovered arms. But I was clear of the Araxtations, 
and that was well worth the price of burned flesh. Immolation was far preferable to death at the claws of those creatures. I stood up in the muck and looked around, trying to gauge my position in relation to the ever-fading sun. Sinkhole Swamp was not a place for stragglers, even in the brightest light of day, so the fact that I was heading into it at this late of an hour was a source of unfathomable dread. But my people were dying, and I could not afford to waste another moment. So I put my dread aside, checked the shadows cast by the bridge to determine my course, and started out for the heart of the swamp. Rumors place the highest concentration of the flower in the southeastern sector of the swamp, so I did my best to head in what I believed to be that direction, seeking dry ground wherever I could find it. It wasn't easy. Many times, the logs I chose as crossing would prove too rotten to be stable, and the rocks, where they rose above water, were slippery and treacherous. At several points, I had to stop and pluck limp leeches from my legs, for the rig had not dried enough to provide a flame capable of burning the parasites off. The sounds of strange jungle creatures followed me on my journey, a symphony of high whistling calls backed by a low croaking undercurrent, a swamp song in which I took little comfort. It was best to not allow the mind to wander upon the mutant terrors making those sounds, so I kept my head forward and my thoughts on my task. I kept on this way, the rig weighing me down and bruising my shoulders for what must have been the better part of the night, when the moon was high in the sky. It was full and bright, and I was grateful for the light it provided, for the rig had only just dried enough to allow me a small nimbus of flame from the nozzle. And yet, I was filled with a feeling of hopelessness, for in all this time I had yet to come across a single jaundiced eye. Desperation seized me, and I stood upon the high rock I had settled upon and fired brief blasts in every direction, hoping that the light would fall upon a patch of the flowers. But all that it revealed were endless swaths of brown and green. Despair was nearly upon me when a flash of yellow caught my attention. I moved quickly in the direction of the flash, climbing awkwardly down from the rock over a mossy patch of ground, across the length of a log, until I came to the bank of a large pond. From the thin strip of dirt on which I stood, it was no more than twenty yards to the far bank, but the pond's shape was oblong in either direction, like the eye of a giant that had been partially closed. There, on the far bank, fluttering in the gentle swamp wind, was a patch of yellow-red petals, their markings unmistakable. More than enough to save all in my tribe. Quickly, I surmised the fastest way around the pond, which from my position was the eastern route. However, it was also the most challenging, with several areas of blockage, gnarled roots that would prove difficult to navigate, jutting rocks that threatened to cause injury and delay. By comparison, the western route was longer, but less perilous, so I was forced to weigh the importance of time versus safety. In the end, I chose safety and started off to the west as fast as my feet would allow. The faintest hint of dawn had begun to crest by the time I approached the patch. As I came upon it, my heart began to race. I could clearly discern the reddish bloom at the heart of the flowers, confirming that this was indeed the treasure I so desperately sought. The grim fact that I would need to survive the journey home did not quell my sense of triumph. I believed with all of my heart that if I could just hold one jaundiced eye in my hand, my safe return would be a matter of providence. If my luck and footing held a few moments longer, my father's faith in me would be rewarded. I was reaching for the closest flower when something caught me by the ankle and pulled me into the pond with incredible force. In the swirling muck, I could only discern the vaguest impression of my attacker. Glinting at me in the murk were a confusion of eyes, many of them on stalks, and beneath them, I caught a hint of pincer-like mandibles gnashing through the silt-laden water. The pressure tightened on my ankle, and I recognized that the creature had me in a claw larger and more powerful than those of the Iraq Station nightmares I had battled mere hours before. The clawed arm drew me closer to the monster's maw, and, 
actin' on pure adrenaline, I freed the blade from its sheath and hacked at anything the best that I could through the added weight of water. After cleaving a few eyes from their stalks, I felt the claw around my ankle loosen, allowing me to pull free of its grip and swim for the surface. Gasping for air, I pulled myself onto the bank, the burden of the now-soaked rig weighing upon me like a boulder. Fate had deposited me near the precious cluster of flowers, and I crawled my way towards it, hoping that I had managed to kill the pond's foul aquatic guardian. But then the water erupted behind me, and the monster emerged, still very much alive and more determined than ever to kill me. With a heaving effort, I flipped my body around, putting my back against the flower bed, and aimed my soaked nozzle at the mutated horror looming over me. Silhouetted against the fading moon was a creature unlike any I had seen. This monstrosity was lobster-shaped, with a long underbelly lined with endless rows of scrabbling legs, at least ten times the size of the largest arachstation. Twin feelers rose out of the cluster of eyes haphazardly arranged on its head, both of them twitching of their own accord, and from its backside grew an undulating skirt of tentacles like those of a giant squid. On the right side of its bulk flexed a segmented arm ending in a large oblong claw, no doubt the very same that pulled me into the pond, matched on the left by a more far-reaching probe that slashed at the air with the smaller, scissor-like appendage. Most of the creature was well-armored by a thick, spiked carapace, and though there were small sections where its gray meat was exposed, landing a killing blow against it seemed nearly impossible. I had not the skill, nor the finesse, to further damage it with my blade. Expecting nothing to come from the soaked rig, I nevertheless triggered the nozzle. To my surprise, a burst of flame issued forth and, knowing I wouldn't get another chance, I emptied the full force of the rig onto the creature. The Leviathan let loose an unholy screech as I bathed it in fire, a blazing mass of thrashing claws, legs, and feelers, and I heard the air trapped under its shell escaping with a sickening hiss. As I unleashed wave after wave of scorching flame upon it, I felt myself laughing, the sound of its agonizing death throes filling my soul with a rush of hysterical triumph. After all I had been through, all that I had endured, it was a dark jubilation I could not contain. My joy passed as I realized that the flaming monstrosity was about to drop right on top of me. Reacting instinctively, I rolled to the side, the force of my effort tearing me free of the rig's harness. The creature fell like a burning tree, smashing onto the ground where I lay only a moment before, its impact causing the last fumes in the rig to explode and blow its hideous bulk into a cloud of fiery particulate. I dived into a roll on the wet moss, dousing the flames caught by my clothing, my lungs burned with the intake of ash and embers, and I crawled as far as I could from the noxious cloud expanded out from the immolated carcass. When I at last reached clean air, I lay there long moments, coughing as the smoke cleared to reveal what, if anything, remained in the wreckage. My heart sank. The rig was destroyed. That much was clear. Its parts were now no more than shrapnel, blended into the scattered bits of shell and meat that had once been the lobster leviathan. But while the loss of the rig was a crushing blow on its own, worse still was the flower bed. All that remained was a scorched sludge and a few scant petals, their once yellow tips blackened by singe. The cure was derived from the heart of the flower, all of which had been flattened and scorched beneath the monster's smoldering bulk. My quest had ended in ruin, and without the rig, I fared little chance of returning home. In light of my failure, this was likely for the best. I trudged over to the wreckage, weighed down despite the absence of the rig from my back. Reaching it, I bent over and picked up one of the singed petals, held it in my hand, feeling its soft fragility between my blistered fingers. 
I am not ashamed to admit that in that moment, I cried. My time of mourning was to be short-lived. Beneath my feet, the ground trembled, and at first, I thought it was just one of the many earthquakes Helix endures. But then I saw a ring of protrusions rising from the soft ground all around me, and I realized that I stood in the center of a vast maw. The mouth of some monstrosity even larger than the one I had just slain. A feeding behemoth rising to claim the carrion I had so graciously cooked for it, taking me as an unexpected but no doubt welcome appetizer. I attempted to jump free of the maw, but my legs failed and I stumbled as the ground gave way beneath me. As I tumbled into the feeder's tunnel-like gullet, I grasped for anything that might stave my descent, any purchase to keep me from being swallowed. My hand caught in an inverted row of teeth that lined the inside of the monster's throat, some evolutionary vestige horrible to contemplate, and I hung there on the wall of the gullet. It was a feeble stay of execution, but the instinct to survive prevails in even the most hopeless of situations. For reasons I cannot fathom, I still clutched the pedal in my free hand. The scorched corpse of the clawed leviathan tumbled past me as I clung for my life, landing far below on a massive sphincter, which then opened to swallow the crisp delicacy before contracting shut again. That was soon to be my fate. With a calming intake of breath, I shut out the insurmountable doom of my predicament and tried to let my mind drift to occasions in which I was happy. The sound of my mother's voice, taken from me at too young an age. A spring afternoon hunt with my father. The jealous looks of boys when I bested them with a bow or beat them at a game of bombardment. The thoughts, few as they were, brought me a kind of peace and gave me the courage to finally loosen my grip. But instead of dropping to my death, a sharp pain gripped my upper arm and I looked up to find that some strange, slimy tether had wrapped around it, holding me to dangle over the chasm. What I saw at the rim of the mall, silhouetted against the growing light of dawn, defied any rational explanation. It was a man, lanky but muscled, clad in stitched hides, synthetic padding, and various items of refuse no doubt pulled from the swamp. That aspect of him was not unusual. It was what he wore on his face that gave me pause. At first, I thought it was some sort of bizarre mask, but on closer inspection, I saw that it was no mask at all. It was a living creature fixed to the man's face, its ocular orbs resting where human eyes should have been, the remainder of its rubbery body draped over the back of the man's head. It appeared to be a mutated cephalopod, an octopus-like creature that had formed some strange manner of symbiosis with its wearer. The majority of its tentacles gripped the man's chiseled jawline, but one had lashed out to stay my fall and was presently all that stood between me and oblivion. Hold on, the man said. The tentacle grasping my arm gave me little choice. There was a burning pain along my forearm as it tightened, the suckers beneath biting into flesh as it pulled me upwards. It hurt so badly that I gasped, the stench of the worm's insides filling my lungs. The next thing I knew, I was out of the maw and tossed back upon the mossy ground. The agony of my sucker-shredded arms caused my head to spin, but I forced myself to sit and look upon the efforts of my freakish savior. Carrying no apparent weapon, the man backed away from the worm, allowing it to rear up before us, a tubular giant made of flesh and teeth. But despite the monster's terrible magnificence, the man remained calm and steadfast, simply raising a hand, palm up in defense. The octopoid on his head fluctuated with internal colors, morphing from an angry red to a calm and pink transitioning finally to a cool, serene blue, all the while its tentacles undulated rhythmically, adding to the effect. The worm stood, 
hypnotized by the pulsate encephalopod. Go now, great Nguntu, the man said. You have had your meal. And like that, the worm god disappeared back into the earth. The man turned to me, and I could make out the sharp crest of a nose beneath the living mask. Though he had saved me, I still feared him, and I felt my grip loosen on the flower petal, allowing it to flutter to the ground as he approached. I could not look away from the amber, coin-like eyes of the cephalopod, and a sudden exhaustion overtook me as the world began to melt away like a liquid veil. I remember a softly spoken command to sleep, and after that, there was only a quiet, peaceful blackness. I dreamt of a cave, some sort of grotto strewn with hanging moss and a shallow pool at its center. The man was there, sitting next to the rock on which I lay, holding the jaundiced eye petal. What do you want with this? He asked me, a tentacle flexed at his chin. To save my people, I rasped. Spore sickness. He nodded, then walked away, into a shadowed alcove. I wanted to follow, but my legs were weak. I could not move. He returned moments later, or it could have been hours. He held a small vial of orange liquid. He opened my hand and pressed it into my palm. This should be enough, he said. I tried to thank him, but my lungs could not find the breath. Home was all I could muster. As if in answer to my question, a great creature rose from the pool, a winged mammalian, somewhere in between a manta and a giant bat. The octopus man fastened a long, flat saddle across its back, and I surmised that the manta bat functioned as some sort of steed. The next thing I knew, I was placed into the rear of the saddle, the man seated in front of me, his hands on long reins. There was a gentle pool, and the creature rose up into the air and spread its mighty wingspan. Hold on, the man said. I wrapped my arms around his torso. After that, I remember only the rush of wind the joy of knowing I was going back to my people. And that, the telltale said, drawing her sleeve back down over her arm, was how I got my scars. There was a moment of quiet reverence from the children. Then Jaco, always the first to question, spoke up. You expect us to believe that some crossbred freak saved this tribe when all they've ever done is try to kill us? I brought the cure back from sinkhole, the telltale said. But I had help. Sometimes, those we perceive to be enemies may be allies, if we aren't too proud to accept the hand they offer. Or the tentacle, Sadie said. The other children laughed and the telltale smiled. The story finished, the children dispersed, and the telltale sat a moment, alone in her thoughts. Her mind turned to the man in the swamp and the recent rumors among the tribes of a strange being who appeared to those in need, whether they be crossbred or heard at, a hero with an octopus for a face. Just stories, the elders would say, a fanciful folktale. There could be no such man. A gentle breeze ruffled the telltale's hair, carrying with it the faint scent of sinkhole. She looked up to the sky and for a moment caught glimpse of a rider. The wings of his great steed flared wide, the rustling of movement beneath his hooded shroud, the gleam of a borrowed eye. But then the phantom was gone, and the telltale rose from the story stump to make her way home.
Thank you for listening to episode 1119. Today's author was Sebastian Bendix with his dark tale, Butane Sally and the Swamp God of Sinkhole. Today's story was told by Sarah Ruth Thomas. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I've been your host today. If you'd like to find more of my work, you can check out ninthstory.com, victoriaslift.com, or follow me on Twitter at dfoytek. Our season 11 lead editor and executive producer was Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our art director and executive producer. Our producer is Meg Williams. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. To find out more about all of today's contributors, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. If you'd like to help us continue to bring you our collection of dark tales, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can also help us by leaving a five-star rating and short review on Apple Podcasts. That really does matter. These ratings and reviews help other listeners find the show, which helps us generate revenue to ensure no one contributing to our show works for free. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, LLC. All rights reserved. 